Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we have a very special twofer for you. Two legendary producers. We're going to talk to Mike Thorne. He's in the second half. I'll tell you more about him later. But first up is the man himself, Alan Parsons. I think everybody knows Alan. Back in the day, what is that, 50 years ago, he worked on Abbey Road, Dark Side of the Moon, and a few other things. But his primary focus, I think, has always really been the Alan Parsons Project. They were making very adventurous kind of prog rock, arty rock music, always calling upon his mastery of studio wizardry. Lots of hits, and they're still going. In fact, this weekend, November 5th, they're releasing a live two-CD, one-DVD compilation called The NeverEnding Show, Live in the Netherlands. This is Games People Play, one of their biggest hits from that show, from that CD. Um, so he is here to talk about that, what the kind of the evolution, I guess you could say, over the years of being the studio guy to having to be a live performer. He even sings on this song. I, I will tell you, it was a little bit of a challenge because I was told ahead of time, number one, that he would only really have 30 minutes. And number two, not to ask him about the Beatles or Pink Floyd. That's kind of a buzzkill. But I'm thinking, well, if we only have 30 minutes, I guess that's okay. He's done a lot of other things. That's perfectly fine. So we did go a little longer. He gave me closer to like 45. But we didn't get into the Beatles and Pink Floyd. And if that's what you came for, I'm really sorry. I feel you on that. But we tried to make it up for other with other things. Al Stewart, Pilot, you know, his own solo work, Al, Eric Wolfson, you name it. Anyway. So that's what where we're going with uh, Alan Parsons. I'll tell you more about Mike later. He called me from his home in Santa Barbara. Well, let's kick it off then with the new live album because um, <laughs> it's interesting. When I saw you were touring, this is, uh, I think you announced this tour, well, I think with COVID. Well, you correct me. It seemed like you were going to go on tour. COVID happened. It stopped. Then there was a break from COVID, so it picked back up again. I don't know where that stands now. So when I saw that you were on, going on tour, I mean, and like, I thought... It's, I, like, it's just like everybody. Uh, we we, yes. we just not toured for an hour, uh, an hour and a half, a year and a half. <laughs> yes. Uh, just had to postpone things. Uh, we, we had a Spanish tour back in uh, July planned. I got cancelled. Then we, had, we would have been on tour right now uh, if it hadn't been for the COVID figures. Yeah, we're just looking looking pretty grim. Yes, and they, they and frankly they continue to look grim. I mean, some journalists try to say, "Oh, uh, let, let's uh, let's just open the country up and ignore it. And, uh, it's going to run its course, and everybody's." Um, <laughs> there was one uh, doctor that I saw on TV the other day. He said, "You will get the virus. Everybody will eventually get the virus." Uh, and that's pretty frightening. Yeah, I saw that too, or something like it, or heard about it. I've I've had that similar thought. My dad actually died of it over the holidays. Oh, I'm so and, sorry. Yeah, it's okay. He had been fine. He was older and uh, you know vulnerable, but he caught it, and two weeks later he was gone, just before the end of the year. So it's been an adjustment. Um, before, before the vaccine. Yes. Before the, yeah. the vaccine available. Yep. I'm, yep. I'm pleased to say I'm now triple vaccinated. Good so, for you. Good for yeah. you. We've been, we've all, my family, we've all been vaccinated uh, once. We've made, we're making 
an appointment to go a second time because my wife and I are going to Poland in a couple of weeks on vacation and uh, want to just be double sure before we leave that everything is in place. So anyway, so about the... A long way to go wearing a mask. Yeah, it is, yes, especially on a plane. Um, so, okay, so when you go out on tour right now, I don't even know. Do you have, like, without Eric Wolfson being around anymore, do you have your set of compadres that you call every single time and they're your touring band and they're the guys that come together? Do you recruit for each place? Like, well, I... I'm in the mood for a new guitarist and I really like what this guy does. How do you bring your touring band to even together? The touring band is, has evolved. I mean, um, we started touring in the uh, mid nineties um, soon after an album called try anything once was released. That was, that was the first, the first outing that was in, uh, in Germany. Um, that was with, all, all British guys, Ian Bernson, the guitar player who had played guitar on all the Alan Parsons Project albums, uh, Stuart Elliott, who played on most of them, Andrew Powell, who did all the string arrangements uh, on on all the albums that had strings, which is all the albums. <laughs> it was a kind of a, yeah, it, it was a new cooperative, you know, those, mm-hmm. those four guys, and you know, those three guys and myself. Yeah. And... Um, that's how it started. Then, as we approached the um, the millennium, I um, I had a, a new relationship with uh, with Lisa, who is now my wife, mm-hmm. and uh, we moved here to Santa Barbara. Then, soon after we'd been here, just probably twelve months or so, we we started an American based band. Mm. We put out uh, an album from Madrid. It was live in Madrid. We got released as Live in Madrid and also as Eye to Eye, mm-hmm. E-Y-E, yeah. number two, E-Y-E, Eye to Eye, um, which was kind of a, a play on the fact that my one of my trademark logos is the is that Eye of Horus. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of my friends is John is John Montagna. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Your bass player for a while. He told me to tell you hello. Oh, good. I'll tell him hi back. I will. Um, I hope he's doing well. Yeah, yeah um, but yeah, John. Uh, John was uh, in that band, a mm-hmm. guitar player called Godfrey Townsend, who was great. Um, Steve Murphy, the drummer, uh, Manny Fukurazzo, the keyboard player, and uh, that worked out great. Um, Good. You guys and, did. Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just saying that. It, then it evolved. You know, we, yeah. we went through a reshuffle. Oh, it must have been 10 years ago that reshuffle happened. And, uh, PJ Olsen has, has been the singer ever since, you know, on every incarnation since uh, since we started touring in the States. In, That's great. In 2003, 2004, something like that. It's interesting. I, uh, I don't remember what the concert was, but when I was in college, it, I went to a show in Salt Lake City. It would have been in the late 90s, early 2000s. And, you know, they hand out swag afterwards like a cassette single of some up-and-coming singer and i had a cassette single for years of pj olsen and uh, in my car that i picked up at the end of a concert and i really i don't remember the name of the song now but i liked it and when i found out later that he was kind of your guy i thought what a what a great career move for a guy like that speaking of which speaking of singers 
you don't take the lead on every song, but I've been watching some of the clips and you, you get in there. Was it ever, I know you guys didn't tour. I don't believe like in the seventies and eighties when the APP was at its height, but was there ever, did you ever have any inkling or desire to be a front man or to get up there and sing your own stuff? Or were you always content to have Eric take care of a lot of that stuff? It it was the last thing on my mind that that we would ever put a live show together. I mean, it it was the Alan Parsons project was exclusively a recording outfit. Mm -hmm. And um, it was only after Eric and I had made our last uh, musical statement together (laughs) that that I assembled the the band with with Ian Stewart and Andrew. And that, that was to help support the 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 first album i i did under my own name without the word project in it just uh just the the uh alan parsons name that that was called try anything once essentially assembled that band to, to promote that album and mm-hmm. off we went and mm-hmm. I was really basically just a an acoustic rhythm guitarist mm-hmm. in the early days I did a few oohs and ahs and do up shoe ups and stuff in the <laughs> background but uh, <laughs> you know uh, yeah I really didn't I really didn't ever think I would be singing lead vocals and, and, and that that just sort of, I just kind of developed into doing that. Yeah. Mainly with the the, uh, the American band. Uh, okay. Did you, is this a function of the music industry not being what it once was? And so you got to get out there. That's where the money is on the road. Is it a function of people just demanding to hear Alan Parsons Project songs live? I mean, there's so many great tracks, so many great hits. Is it you just having a, I'm ready. I'm ready to be a front man now. What's what's at the heart of this kind of transformation? Because you're one of the greatest musical scientists that have ever lived, you know? So you talking about it being a studio project, that's all that's needed. If you have Alan Parsons on your team creating anything, it's going to be among the greatest thing that's ever been made. So I'm curious why you decided, let's go on tour. Let's take this on the road. It, it was um, originally simply to get the best possible chance at, uh, uh, at getting good exposure on the album, on the Triumphing yeah. album. Uh, Eric was never never really interested in, in touring live. I, I think he thought tour buses were very nasty places to be. Uh, he could be right. Right. <laughs> um, most most of our early touring was done flying. You know, we would we would uh-huh. fly from 
from each uh, gig to the next. Uh, it only developed into bus touring like like everybody else uh, in later years. But um, it, it was, yeah, I mean, it, the, the, the touring band was originally simply to give the uh, mm. Try Anything like Trying to think once album its best chance. Okay. And then, hey, what 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 was really uh, interesting about it is that I really liked doing it. It was really really, really fun to do. Really, really yeah. fun to play and uh, you know, have have the feedback from the audience and sure get to know what songs went down well. And yeah, in which countries and so on and so on. So it, it was a, a really interesting time in the early days. Where early are the where are the hotspots for you? I know the live album was filmed in, in the, or recorded in the Netherlands. Where else? Where does, where's Holland, Holland, the Netherlands are incredibly strong. Um, we, we had a giant, giant hit with Old and Wise in, in Holland. That's um, from Eye in the Sky. the listeners know <laughs> uh huge in holland um quite quite big a uh, very big in germany the next the next most popular area would probably be spain um and then south american countries um, of the states of course the states yeah. uh, does really well interestingly we have a very feeble following in my uh, in my homeland the uk which is Crazy how that happens. Not, not really uh, very. It didn't really do very well mm. in the UK at all. So. Crazy. It is. And yet they love Abbey Road and Dark Side, but they aren't paying attention to what Alan Parsons is doing on his own. It's sad. I was yeah. curious about that too. So I, I'm wondering how you feel about your ability to adapt to technology. And I'll tell you what sparks that convers- that question. So a few years ago... I, uh, I'm listening to Valid Path, Valid Path uh, album.
and it sounds a lot like the techno and the breakbeat and the that kind of trance music that's really hot at that time in the early 2000s. And no offense to you, as much a genius as you are, I'm kind of shocked. I'm thinking, I can't believe how well Alan Parsons has his finger on the technology that's making music today, because this is this sounds so modern and vibrant. That album is great. Being the studio kind of wizard that you are, you continue to be as amazed and provoked by technology or did you, is it one of those things where it was better before, or is it hard to keep up? How do you feel about that? Um, a Valid Path was really um, an attempt to uh, to be modern, yes, and, and, and to capture a, a younger audience. Um, I mean, the previous uh, previous albums have done okay, but they hadn't really set the world alight. And I, I loved I loved the uh, trance. Um, electronic yeah. style very much and I just latched on to a, a few people who who had done really well in that genre and uh, I worked with them and it it came out well um, sadly the album <laughs> barely made any any impression really? but so uh, you know I worked with the, the crystal method I worked mm-hmm. with um, um, I managed to even get D- David Giltmore to do a, yeah. a guitar solo um, and uh, there's a guy. There's a guy who has an outfit called Spungle. He, he was. He was. He was great. Mm. Very, very talented guy. And it was literally just me and a computer in a in a room in, in the in the house I was living with at the time. It wasn't really a, a studio at all. So it was. Mm. It was just literally uh, computer music, and, and mm. uh, I I was terrified of it. To start with, I said, "How how can everything live in in the computer <laughs> yes. uh, without being saved somewhere?" You know. Yes, uh, yes. And, and being real and being playable on it on a CD player or something. Yeah, uh, I, was, I was very frightened of it, but uh, it was an experience, and uh, it taught it taught me that <clears throat> you know hard disk recording was was a real thing. Yeah. You know, I in later work I uh, went back to traditional ideals, traditional methods, traditional a band playing together yeah. um, and, and bouncing off each other. Sure. I, I still, to this day, think that's the, that's what brings out the magic in, in the music I do. Yeah. I was listening back to The Secret, um, which I think is your last album, and I'm blanking on the name of the song, the one with Jason Mraz. Um, oh, come on. Miracle. It's called Miracle. Miracles. That's it. Yes. Miracle. Love that tune. There's a sound to the light this morning As it's pouring into my heart And for a moment I knew the stars could shine through me But my worries float on the evening Hiding behind the clouds And now I'm certain that life's don't part of me Show me a miracle Show me the real 
you're right. It sounds more of a piece with what you sort of come to expect with it from Alan Parsons. That more studio driven, you can hear that everybody playing on these songs is like some of the best. It's like a Steely Dan thing in a way. Some of the best musicians in the world want to work with Alan Parsons and be on one of your albums. Um, I want to ask you specifically about one of your songs. We have Patreon supporters and I tell them who I'm interviewing and they are welcome to submit questions if they want. One of them, uh, Derek Mansfield was asking specifically about the song Nucleus. Because to him, that sounds like that song sounds like somebody who is wrestling with the technology of the time, um, new technology, making new sounds, kind of like you were just saying about Ballad Path, except this is, you know, early 80s. Is it is he on to something there? Do you remember the making of Nucleus? And was that you sort of tinkering or toying with new? Oh, it was um, it was an incredibly technologically creative uh, piece. Um, it was. Uh, assembled from little little snippets of other songs on the album and uh, there was this uh, sort of flowing uh, set of chords that just uh, that just evolved from one to one one chord to the next over and over again it, I, I loved it and yeah. um, a lot of people a lot of people have said why can't you do <laughs> more more music like nucleus but it was it was actually pretty challenging at the time it was uh, yeah very uh very technically demanding and a lot of lot of loops of tape and lots of sure. stuff going on yeah but you love that stuff i i mean i don't know you at all at all alan but i'm just imagining no one probably loves to solve a riddle like that more than alan parsons put him mm -hmm. in a studio like that with gadgetry everywhere and let him solve it solve a problem and create something amazing it feels like that's what you were put on this earth to do well thank you <laughs> Um, you know well thank you yeah i mean um i i've always felt that the studio was my you know was my yeah. home and I, I mentioned earlier that i i love playing live but i'm, I'm still really a, a studio guy that's uh -huh. where that, that's where i that's where i came into the business that's where i, I yeah. still am you know whatever it is 50 years later um you work a lot with uh uh 5.1 right uh, stereo sound tell us about that is that where you think we're going is that the best there is what's your feeling on it well there's a, a big movement towards an um a new format called dolby atmos um i'm about to install a system in my studio uh, that will be able to 
record and uh, reproduce that that format. Um, it's it's already um, doing quite good business in in the cinema. Um, but yes, uh, five five point one surround. I've um, I actually got a, a, a Grammy uh, two years ago for the remix, the five point one remix of Eye in the Sky, along with PJ. I mean, PJ uh, helped uh, helped me uh, mix that. Okay. So yeah, um, the problem is not enough people have 5.1 systems at home. You know, it, 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 it's five speakers and a subwoofer, and uh, you know, to, to find that kind of space in a, in a home is yeah. it's challenging for, for some people. Yeah. Although it's it, it's it's made a lot easier with the likes of Sonos who make wireless units, and, mm -hmm. um, but. Uh, that, that I, I I wish there, there was more uh, acceptance of, of the 5.1 format. Yeah. Uh, Dolby Atmos will have speakers above you, at the side of you, and uh, as well as the front and back. So wow. it's it's you know it, it, it's going to be a all encompassing uh, mm -hmm. immersive experience, mm -hmm. and it, it seems to be picking up. A lot of people are showing a lot of a lot of interest in it. Good. It does sound like when you say that, that's where we could go. It's you're right. It's a matter of adoption and cost and who, you know, people's home studios and stairs, uh, you know, home entertainment studios are becoming more sophisticated, but are they ready to do this? Who knows? Maybe I, if the movie industry pushes it and then there's a way for both things to benefit at once, you know, I can watch, avatar and i can listen to the new alvin parsons album win-win yeah i that, that's the problem the, the the people with home theaters use it exactly as that home theater they, yeah. they watch movies they, yeah they, they haven't really accepted the, the notion that um you know, that it can be used for sound as well as as well as pictures yeah which um which actually makes it great for li live concert footage I mean, live con live concerts in 5.1 are, are pretty exciting I, mean, I, I believe it i'm looking forward to seeing people's reaction to to this latest one i believe it. We, we, we've already put one out we did a, a show in columbia with um, a symphony orchestra oh it's going to be seven or eight years ago now mm. um but this is uh this is a show uh, recorded in utrecht in holland and mm. uh, it, it sounds really good in, in surround as well as in stereo and, and the pictures, you know, you can say of course. it has, has images as well as sound for, yeah. to uh, appease those who, <laughs> who uh, only want, want it for, for, for the video aspect of it. Sure. Okay. You said the keyword because uh, video was where I was going to go next. My earliest memory of you is the um, don't answer me video.
which when my kids were little, I would sit them on my lap and we would pull up YouTube and we would watch that and the primetime video because the mannequins coming to life was kind of freaky and they loved it. To this day, they know that song. That's the song with the moon. They know, they know Alan Parsons because we've spent so much time watching that video. I remember the world premiere. I remember Mark Goodman talking about it being like the first 100% animated music video or something like that. Can you tell us about the creation of the video? Who decided on that? Did you have anything to do with it? How did it work? I had very little to do with it. Um, we, we just, uh, the, the label just found this uh, graphic artist that uh, was very good at uh, emulating the, the Dan Tracy style, um, uh, sorry, Dick Tracy style. Uh-huh. I've got that right. It's not, yes, I'm, Dick I'm, Tracy. Uh-huh. I'm confusing him with, with Dan Tracy, who's one of my band. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, and uh, it, it was it was pretty different, you know, for for a, a rock video at the time yeah. uh, to be animated like that. But I, I loved it, and uh, uh-huh. they uh, did little caricatures of Eric and myself during the uh, yeah during the footage. And it, it was a quite a hit at MTV. We got a lot of a lot of play there, and I think um, it won some kind of award, you know, for best uh, best rock video or best animation video yeah. or something. Yeah. Deserves it. Um, okay, another one of your um, songs. Well, it's not time. 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 I, I didn't care for that video very much. Oh really? Oh, um, I thought that was so cool. The mannequin <laughs> coming to life. I think if it had been made today, it would have been better, more, you know, more, uh, more real sort of morphing and special effects. Sure, sure. Well, they did the best they could with what they had. I, f- I found it was a little overacted as well. Oh, well, I liked it. As an 11-year-old, I oh, think I you. was. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, <laughs> I don't know how discerning my tastes were at 11 years old, but I loved it. I'll tell you that. Um, okay. I was curious... Um, I want to talk about one song. We don't have to, I, you've talked about Pink Floyd and the Beatles enough. I want to ask you about Al Stewart's Year of the Cat, because that's one of my favorite songs ever. And I was curious, I learned in getting ready to talk to you, I believe, that you were the one who introduced the, the idea of the sax solo. Is that right? So how did you, what did you do to shape this song? Because to me, it's a masterpiece.
are still with her On the bus and the tourists are gone And you've thrown away your choice And lost your ticket So you have to stay on But the drumbeat strains of the night remain And the rhythm of the newborn day You know sometime you're bound to leave her But for now you're gonna stay In the year of the cat Um, it, it, it's incredible that it was a hit because it was incredibly long and it's, yeah. it runs, I don't know, six minutes or something, Yeah, um, which was taboo for uh, getting play on FM radio at the time. But um, we, we recorded uh, we recorded it in, in Abbey Road, the, the basic track at Abbey Road in, in London, and uh, we had a whole series of, of solos. We said, all right, well, we'll do an acoustic solo, We'll do an electric solo, mm-hmm. and we'll do a sort of more uh, adventurous, more fuzzy electric solo. And I said, you know, this is all the guitars. Why don't we, why don't we introduce a new sound? And, uh, and I said, I, I know this great sax player, uh, Phil Kenzie. And uh, there and then I called him, and, and he came in. I was slightly perplexed. He, he said, saxophone. That's it. That's a jazz instrument. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not uh, a jazz artist. So he was a, a little, a little suspicious of it. But uh-huh. I think he, he he grew to like it. And the, the sort of upside of the of the whole story is that uh, he asked Phil to join his band, <laughs> and, uh, and and put him all over the next album, Time Passages. So that'll do it. Yeah. He 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 was almost as famous for his uh, saxophone solo as uh, as the guy on Baker Street. That's uh, right. Um, Raphael Ravenscroft, I believe is that guy's name. Jerry Rafferty and, and Raph Ravenscroft. Yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I saw um, Al in concert a few years ago with Orleans and Ambrosia, and it was such a great show having uh, all those bands, two of which I know you were really close with, I, one of my listeners mentioned, one of the Patreon supporters mentioned that he thought you were working with David Pack. Are you doing something with David Pack? Um, we're, we're always in touch with each other. We've, we've been uh, best friends for, for many, many years. Uh, we, we've, we, in the early days of COVID, we did, we did some uh, Beatles songs together, you know, to, just to be out there, to be present out there. Uh-huh. And uh, he, he's appeared on uh, he's appeared on a number of uh, albums. He, he was on China Thing once. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we've done we've done bits and pieces together. I'm actually okay. going to be remixing the um, the first two Ambrosia albums in surround. Ooh, nice! Uh, so we're looking forward to doing that. that. That'll happen probably in the next couple of months. Nice. I've had Joe Puerta on here and uh, Burley, actually, both from Ambrosia. All right. And um, yeah, Burley, that's one of the Burley, Burley's down the road here from, from me. He's uh, somewhere between Santa Barbara and LA. Oh, really? I haven't both seen of them are such few. nice guys. Yeah, oh, they're great. Uh, I haven't seen them for a while, but. Yeah. They're such great guys. And you forget because Ambrosia's biggest hits were now you'd probably call them yacht rock, but that's sort of soft 
rock of the late 70s, you forget what an experimental, proggy, creative band they really were, and that those hits are the outliers. The rest of the band stuff is not that different than what you were doing or what other prog bands of the time would have been doing that you probably that you yeah, were the, the first two records were very definitely prog. Uh, Absolutely. And then they went, they went more commercial and that's when they started having number one hits. And that's when I was not involved, <laughs> which is very frustrating, but uh, you know, yes. they, they became, you know, a, a, a pop hit band. Uh, the question I was asking is one of our listeners, Craig, was asking specifically about how Kip Winger entered your orbit. And I was saying that I think anyone who really pays attention knows that all of the guys in Wingers are some of the best uh, musicians in rock. And Kip has proven himself to be a fantastic composer as well, Grammy nominated. But how did you two cross paths? Um, I, you know, I honestly can't remember who who uh, came up with Kip's name. It was, it was uh, just a situation where PJ was unable to, to tour, but Kip's great. He's, um, he's a, as, as you correctly pointed out, he's a great composer. He writes uh, classical, you know, writes for orchestral scores as well as uh, rock stuff. He uh, contributed greatly to an album I did with the, uh, Virtuoso ukulele player Jake Shimabukuro. You feel familiar with this album? No, I don't think so. most of your albums but i don't think i've heard this one what's it called again it it's a it's a it's a ukulele player player called jake shimabukuro if you you, you must look him up he's okay. uh, the most incredible talent i was advised to go and see him uh, up in uh, san jose in california i'm going to go and watch a guy playing ukulele <laughs> for an hour and a half in a theater and the guy said yes you are and I, I went <laughs> almost laughing. Okay, all right. But I came away thinking that that, that, that is the most incredible musician I've ever seen. Oh, wow. You must look him up. Okay, just, I just, will. Just, just look up Jake Ukulele. You'll find him. Okay, I got anyway, it. Anyway, Kip, the reason for mentioning him is that Kip did some uh, string arrangements for that album. Um, the, the album I did with him is called Grand Ukulele. So. Okay. I'm going to listen to that tonight. That is great. 
Um, okay. So a couple other things that I wanted to throw at you. One of our listeners, I had this kind of question too. Michael Backford was asking, you know, so many of your albums are around a concept or you can call them a concept album, but he wondered, and I was curious about this too. Do you have to have a concept before you go into an out al- to create an album or does that just help you structure or organize your thoughts? Exactly. Okay. If, you, if you have a, a sort of theme to, to work uh, the songs into, it really helps. And the secret was very definitely, you know, magic based. Yeah. So, you know, the word magic or a suggestion of magic comes into every song. Sure. And it happens to be my hobby. Magic is my hobby. So. Really? Are you like a magician? Yes, I'm going to disappear in a moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that, but a lot of people practice magic on the side, like, you know, sleight of hand and everything. Is that a thing for you, a hobby? Yes. Yeah. Wow. I wish I had more time for it. Um, yeah. I, you know, I just love card tricks, coin tricks. and Sure. You know, I love fooling people. You know. Yes. It's great. That's <laughs> true. That's true. Um, one of our listeners, Philip Mar- uh, asked specifically around, well, he wanted to know, okay, let me condense this. He was curious what your top three albums that you worked on are, but more specifically, you don't have to answer that. Uh, would the Raven be included or near the top three? Cause he's a big fan of the Raven. Um, well, that's a, that's a song rather than. Or I'm sorry, a, yes, a song. Um, yeah, the Raven would be that uh, would definitely be in the top five. Um, I mean, is the question just the Alan Parsons project, or is it? Well, I, I mean, he didn't specify. I mean, I I guess just would you cons- consider the Raven to be one of the top three things you've done or worked on or favorite projects or whatever? That's why I was kind of expanding um, I mean, it beyond if, the song. If you'd ask me my favorite project album, it would be. Tells a mystery and imagination, which really is, is where the Raven yeah. came, of course. But uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I whenever I'm asked that that question about my favorite album, my own, I always come up with that one because it yeah, it was it was new ground, it was new territory, it was like firstborn child. You know? Sure. Uh, yeah, I still okay. still they feel it's the strongest. Okay. Um, we had a lot of questions around games people play. 
Um, you've probably talked about that a million times, but a couple of specifics around the intro and the bridge. And Brian Morris wanted to know specifically if you had any stories about the creation of the intro or the bridge of game pe- games people play. Well, the intro, the intro is 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 just a, a loop uh, assembled from uh, countless different keyboards all playing the same thing. Mm. We, we we filled up a a sixteen track tape of harpsichord, piano, uh, synth sounds, plucked sounds, probably even guitars playing that that same riff, and it just comes over as a as a rather interesting. It's just a sound. You can't really identify what it is. Mm-hmm. And it goes, it continues throughout the song. It, it, it never stops. So, um, the, the bridge section, the uh, solo section. Um, I always felt it was a bit long. Mm, really? <laughs> to, this day I hear, to this day, I hear it uh, on record. and it, it, it sounds a little on the long side. We try to, uh, when we play it live, I, I think we perhaps make it a little more interesting, a little more yeah. more. Build them all, but uh, no, it, it, it was a, a it was a big song for us. You know, yeah. both games people play and and time were arguably, you know, some of the biggest hits. Besides Science Sky, of course. But. Yeah. How did you meet Eric? And then did you two have like a falling out or anything like that? Because you kind of went your own way, split your own ways eventually, right? How did you two meet like, and what was the nature of your relationship? Like so many people, I mean, you you, yeah. you, you stay your course, you uh, you uh, reach a point where there's there's nothing left yeah. that you really want to do together. It was, it, it was not helped by the fact that her... Eric got himself into a big legal wrangle over a, a show that we, the, pretty much the last thing we did was called Freudiana. And, uh, he ended up suing the producer of the musical that uh, was created through that. And basically we were unable to work together for a period of three or four years. And that's when I said, I, I, I can't afford to spend any more time doing nothing. Yeah. And uh, that's when I got, got the band together to, to play, uh, try anything once. Um, but we, we've originally met uh, in the Abbey Road restaurant. Um, he was producing in another studio and I just got talking to him. Um, sensed he was very knowledgeable in the record business and uh, 
we talked and he offered to become my manager. That's, mm. that's how it all started. Okay. So he, he was always a businessman, right? Yeah. Right through, yeah. Was he, did he intend to be a front man? Because whenever I think of Eric, first of all, his voice is like this soothing, wonderful, gauzy, warm hug, but it's <laughs> not an overpowering voice. It's not, it doesn't strike me as the voice of somebody who grew up wanting to be a singer. It sounds like somebody who stumbled on the fact that he had a special thing that no one else had, and it's his own little thing. Maybe I'm misreading that, but that's my impression of Eric Wolfson. I, I think in the early days of the project, he had no particular aspirations to being featured as a singer. So, I mean, it, it, we, we did uh, Tales of Mystery, iRobot, Pyramid, and Eve, but before he was even ever in front of the microphone to do a lead vocal. He always sang on the demos, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it was really only when it came to uh, the turn of a friendly card, which was uh, recorded in Paris. And he said, I'd really like to have a shot at singing this, this song. Really? And uh, I was, I was, I was doubtful to be honest, uh -huh. you know, uh -huh. being heard his, uh, his voice for, you know, through the other, the other albums as a, as a sort of demo voice, mm -hmm. but uh, he did a great job. Yeah. Time is a, is a great vocal and it's a very difficult song to sing. It's a very, uh, very extended range of notes. The chorus goes way up high and the verse is way low. So There's no one that quite sounds like Eric. He's got a, such a unique voice. I love sure. it. So comforting and soothing. Um, I had another uh, listener, Martin, ask about working with Pilot. Of course, he's a big Pilot fan. You produced new, uh, Magic. big hit you have any stories about working with pilot that leaped to mind well they, the pilot actually became the rhythm section for the first album mm. uh, the uh tells of mystery was essentially the band pilot you know uh being uh you know directed by eric and myself mm -hmm. with with our songs as opposed to their songs um and um david payton the bass player ended up uh, doing quite a few uh, vocals for us over the years. Um, it was um, it was a really good way of, of of taking a session band that also happened to be a performing band. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, that worked really well. And we, and we had, you know, yeah, we had some success. Magic was a big, a big hit. We had another, we had a UK number one with a song called January. so well over here but they were they were they were a great band and, and fun to work with you know i was thinking you are rightfully considered i think one of the best producers ever but you at a time when you could have worked with just about everybody i'm imagining everybody pounding down alan parsons door please come work with me and give me some of your magic and you saying no, thank you. I'm focused on my own project here. Is that what that was like? It, it really wasn't. I mean, uh, <laughs> unless Eric, as my manager, was was you know uh, shielding you from that being, kind of stuff, being very juicy about who, who uh, whose phone calls he would refer to me. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I mean, Al Stewart came along. That 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 was that was a yeah. good one. Um, I, I did solo work with. Uh, with Lenny Zakatek, who was the guy that sang uh, Games People Play and Wouldn't Want to Be Like You. Yeah. Did some albums with him. And uh, I'm sur- surprised sometimes when I see other producers' credits. <laughs> you know, the, the list of artists that some producers seem to have worked with is, is so incredibly long. And my, my, my list is really quite short. It's, you know, yeah. it's, it's Beatles, Pink Floyd, <laughs> Alan Park Project, Pilot, John Miles, Cotton Rebel, Al Stewart. Yeah, like, it, it, yeah. I count them on the fingers of two hands. Right, right. I, I just don't know how other producers have managed to find the time to huh. do so many different things. Yeah. But I, I, ne- uh, I never knowingly turned anything down that I remember. Uh, okay. But sure. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll do this. I'll mix that. I'll, uh, I'll work with you. Um, okay. An odd question. Uh, and I know we're coming up on time. Sirius being adopted as the sports anthem that it is. It used to announce, you know, the Chicago Bulls, and then I think it went from there, probably announces every other team too.
how did that begin? Were you tapped? Were you tipped off to this? Did people do it without your knowledge? Tell us what you what you remember of this. Sirius was just a an intro uh-huh. to uh, to the Iron Sky album. It, it was a uh, we always uh, had a tradition for starting each album instrumentally, mm-hmm. and um, we thought we we we. We believe that "I in the Sky" was the first, you know, was the right song to have as the first song on the album. So uh, I, I just wrote that that piece instrumentally, and, and we tagged it on to the beginning of, uh, of the intro to "I in the Sky," and it worked really well. Mm-hmm. I had no idea at the time that it would become a sports anthem. Who would have, you know? <laughs> uh, but of course. It, it's great that uh, yeah. that it does still gets used to this day. People often ask, uh, "Hey, do you get uh, do you get paid every time that's played at a, at a stadium?" The answer is sadly no. Oh, I uh, wondered that same thing. Okay, <laughs> okay. Um, the music in uh, sports stadiums is uh, subject to a blanket re- agreement with the collection agencies. So, right. okay, okay. No money changes hands. Sadly. But, That's what I thought. But uh, my reputation—I mean, it, it, my reputation has certainly been greatly improved by Sirius. And, Absolutely, and arguably the best-known piece out there. Absolutely, absolutely. With, with Whether they know there. they're listening to you or not, everybody has heard that song. That's very true. That's <laughs> yes. very true. And I, I, I've often seen faces, but perhaps less so recently. But in the early days of touring. We go, we go into the, the riff on Sirius David, and, and you see people looking at each other. Oh, that's Alan Parsons. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm imagining. Yes. Uh, in fact, I, well, yeah, I don't think I knew that it was, I just figured it was something the Bulls or whatever had created for their own thing. Cause I was pretty young at the time. It wasn't until later that I realized it was an actual song that was being repurposed. Um, anyway, well, Alan, I'll let you go. Um, thank you for, first of all, thank you for all of the stuff you've put into this world because you're a master and you've made the world a better place for so many of us. Thank you. And thank you for chatting with me. You're very kind. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. There you have it. Alan Parsons. Now, oh, by the way, don't forget the never ending show live in Netherlands, the Netherlands comes out this weekend, November 5th. Two CDs, one DVD, got everything you could want on it. It's fantastic. Now, next up, we're talking to Mike Thorne. Mike is the guy behind this song right here. He produced Tainted Love. He also worked closely with uh, Jimmy Somerville, both in Bronski Beat and Communards. And he produced Till Tuesday's Voices Carry album, as well as a bunch of other things that we get into in here. He's done a lot of other things, too. He was a music writer for a while. And he was an A&R guy. In fact, he's the guy who encouraged EMI to sign the Sex Pistols. Can you believe that? So we get into a little bit of everything, too. This one was also a little bit of a challenge because Mike's not the most talkative guy in the world. And he doesn't really talk about himself that much. And But you know there are great stories in there. And he tells some in here as well. So anyway, still lots of good information to come away with. Um, I hope you like it. He called me from his home in New York City. All right. Well, you know, I've been thinking about how to begin with you, Mike, because there are so many 
aspects of your career that I find interesting. I mean, not just the production work, but the the uh, A and R man, the music journalist. Um, I thought let's kick it off with one of the stories you probably have to tell most often, and then move on from there. And that is, let's hear about the making of um, Tainted Love. Uh, I first of all, I should tell anybody you your website has great stories about just about all of the major things and some of the littler things that you've worked on, stereosociety.com. And so I've read some of these, but I, um, so I want to point people to those, but tell us how you got involved and what was the making of Tainted Love like? Making Tainted Love was sort of a fortuitous accident. I was over in London with all my gear. Uh, I live in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, to to record a feature film score for Memoirs of a Survivor, starring Julie Christie. And so I was all set up in the studio, and the record company called and said, uh, could you do a one-off single? And how about another one-off single while you're at it? So I said, sure. And that turned out to be uh, singles by B-Movie mm-hmm. and by Soft Cell. And Soft Cell was Tainted Love. That's crazy. Would you, um, were, so in looking over what you guys were doing, I mean, you specifically were working closely with Mark Almond and then also with Jimmy Somerville, two of the most out and proud gay icons of their era. Um, what were they like as people to work with? They were regular pleasant people. It was really? no, no problem at all. But what was happening to me back then, we're in the 70s and 80s now, is that uh, the record business couldn't always handle uh, unusual people, let's say. Mm-hmm. The record business had a hard time handling women. Yeah. And, uh, so so gays was even left of that, I guess. <laughs> and I was perfectly comfortable in any social circumstances. So I tended to get call for uh, all the oddballs. Uh. At least the, odd, the oddballs as the record companies thought them. Right, and that's how I came to do so many women and so many gays. That's it's right. Not particular, not particularly a direction, but once I knew, once people knew that I was open and <laughs> not like uh-huh. the rest of the record business, possibly, uh-huh. then off we went. Yeah, one of the things I noticed when reading your website is it sounded like that sort of bink bink part at the beginning of Tainted Love was almost an accident. Or the way that it, the tone of it or the sound of it was not necessarily meant to be? What's that story? We had rented a signer, S-Y-N-A-R-E, and, you know, it was useful on those accents, but it was sort of ordinary. It just went like uh-huh. the cheesy electronic snares in those days. So I said, uh, just give me a second. And so I hooked it up to... Uh, Delta Labs DO4, which I'm still looking at right now, mm. which has a very fast delay. And it can also sweep the delay, which is where the bink sound comes from. It had the additional benefit, unlike so many delay lines, of having a self-limiting feature, which means you could turn the, the, the repeat all the way up and it wouldn't go into overdrive feedback. Mm. Mm. And this is exactly what I did. And the limiter kicked in, and all of a sudden there was this nice bink bink sound coming out. So, so we thought we like this, so we recorded it. Yeah. One of the things that I thought was also really interesting is reading up on your rec- recollections of making the art of falling apart. Here, 
you know, Soft Cell has put out a single that becomes the biggest seller of 1981, and they the next five years of their life is just a blur. And you're there along with them. But by the time Art of Falling Apart comes out, you, you, you mentioned, I thought it was so clear, so interesting the way you put this, that the sparkle had clearly left their eye. And what, is, what do you think happens to people when they find success that makes it so difficult after that? Regular guys like me think that's the pinnacle. That's when things get good. But so often that's not when things get good. That's when they get really hard. Well, it's the old joke about the second album is the hardest one. Yeah. Because you go into the first album with all your ideas intact and the ideas that you've saved up over your life so far. And then you go into the second album and you've got a year to figure it out. Yeah. And that can bring a lot of people up short. Mm-hmm. Well, do you think when people have a hard time making that follow-up album, is it? Um, do you notice anything like, is it the mark of a of a true artist or a better artist to kind of work past it and build a career beyond it? Or um, is it, is it any kind of commentary on the limitations of the artists themselves? Is it just the pressure of the music industry? What do you, what do you, uh, what do you attach that to? Well, it's not the artist specifically because one of the attractions for me of being a producer is that all artists are different. Yeah. So they're not going to fall into the same trap or pit or whatever. It's different with everybody. Some people would sail through it. Some people would freeze. As a producer, my job was to unfreeze people uh-huh. uh, or just catch whatever's going on. And again, that's the attraction for me of production. You you never quite know what's coming at you. Yeah. Yeah. I've, you know, I've had so many uh, producers on here, some, several of which I know you know. Like uh, you've mentioned on your website Julian Mendelssohn a couple of times, and I talked to him about a year and a half ago. He's just about the nicest guy in the world. And yeah. um, so often your job as a producer seems almost to be like a psychiatrist, you know, to kind of talk these creative people out of paranoia and out of stress to help them find kind of a true center somewhere. Do you feel that? Sometimes I think that, uh, you know, the music's there, the music's in their head, and they can't always express it, especially in studio terms, mm. because there's a lot to deal with. And yeah. it was my was my job a lot of the time just to make life easy so that they could do what they did. Yeah. And I could take care of the details. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Um, okay, speaking of then of Jimmy Somerville and Bronsky Beat, we have some Patreon supporters, and I mentioned to them that I was going to be talking with you, and one of them in particular asked Alan Lewis, uh, when you first heard or worked on Small Town Boy, I mean, did you have any idea that that was going to go on to be such an important song?
there was nothing like it at the time telling a story that no one else is talking about, not in the mainstream anyway. Um, it's kind of legendary. It turned out rather nicely, but uh, it's much broader than that. Hmm. Um, we went in with the song, and it was a small town boy, and I, I just listened to the song, and it made a lot of sense. Nice tune, nice singing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's broader than gay. Yeah. And it, it, it came out of the gay scene, as did so much pop music anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but the point is that it applies to everybody. Everybody's been through yeah. that. It spread much more broadly than Jimmy's particular angle. Mm-hmm. And people appreciated that. And that's where it went. So yeah. gay or straight, it didn't matter at all. That's true. Um, something I've always thought was interesting about Jimmy in that period. What was it that... <laughs> you know, to a to a regular person who listens to those Bronski Beat and Communards albums, they don't sound that different. I mean, it's still Jimmy's incredible voice with excellent synth pop, almost disco rhythms and stuff like that. Why did do you know why Jimmy felt like he needed to retire one band and start another when the difference between them is not that great? I guess they. <laughs> The cliche cliche would be artistic differences. They weren't getting along together as much as they would have liked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you? Was he a different person when you were working with him on Communards? Absolutely not. No. Really. He's, uh, very much his own person, <laughs> and just just gets on with it. Yeah. Yeah. What was? Um, did he approach the music differently? Was his relationship with Richard Cole? Um, more to his liking, and that made it easier to, you know, create under those circumstances. Um, it's different. Okay, it's, uh, you're always you're as good as your collaborator, basically. And he was as good as Bronski Beat, and he was as gr- good as Richard. Yeah, and everybody fed off each other. That's the way it should be if it's working well. And if it's really working well, then sometimes you can't remember who got what idea. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. So let's see. And, um, I think the big one, I mean, there's a lot of big ones for communards, but don't leave me this way. Wasn't that like the biggest selling single of 87 or something like that? In the UK, yeah, mm, but I, th- I think it was—I think it was number one in something like seventeen territories. Yeah, yeah. And so here's the second time that you've worked on—you've produced the number one single in the UK for a given year. With, uh, I mean, what is that like for you? I mean, you are you? Do you get? Uh, 
Do you get calls from everybody wanting to work with you after stuff like that happens? Oh, yes, you're definitely on the map. But when I made those two records, it wasn't... I didn't know that they were going to be quote-unquote commercial. Yeah. Uh, it was just they were good records with people I liked, and, and that's my... That's my raison d'etre of making a record. It's music, music I like with people I like. Yeah. You know, I, want, I want to have some fun. I don't want to create a career. And so in those, both those two cases, um, there was good music to be made with very nice people. So yeah. off we went. And yeah. that's, that's the thing they have in common. Both of those songs were covers. Did, um, did the, in both cases, did the artists, when I say both, I mean Tainted Love as well. So did, both, did the artists in both cases bring to you these covers and say, this is what we're ha- we have in mind. We think we could do a really good job with this song that someone else made famous. Or are you in there deciding with them, helping them find a cover that suits them? We weren't looking for covers specifically. It's mm-hmm. just that they happened to know those songs and they happened to like them. And they said, how about it? And I said, sure. Mm-hmm. And off we went. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did, was there ever any uh, commentary or you know, uh, input from the original artists or the songwriters or anything like that as you're making those songs? Uh, the answer is no. Okay. And I, I'd known the original version, well, the Gloria Jones Course. version of Tainted Love, which I wasn't too thrilled by. Mm. And I was surprised when they brought it in, but then uh, Mark opened his mouth and it was a very different proposition entirely. Yeah. And as for Don't Leave Me This Way, well, that was a classic anyway. Yeah. With yeah. two, version, two vi- versions of it in the chart at the same time coming out of Philadelphia. Yeah. And yeah. so that's a classic. And so we should have hesitated, I guess, before covering it. But we didn't. We just went good. and made it. And that was it. Good. Good. It's so great. Um, let's talk for a minute about you as an A&R man. So my understanding is that, you know, you kind of float in and out of various careers, it sounds like. You kind of start out as a T-boy tape operator. For, tell me if I have any, anything wrong. And that at last for a couple of years. Then you kind of go into, I think, is then it music journalism? And you become the editor of the of the um, stereo sound or stu- no, studio sound. Studio sound. Yes. Magazine, right. Yes. What are you covering? I'm, I don't know much about that magazine. What is it? What were you covering? It was a professional audio magazine. Okay. And when I took it over, it, it had just graduated from being the old tape recorder, which was uh, basically amateur. But then I went in when the publishing company had developed concerns to make it into into a professional magazine. And so by the time I'd quit uh, after two years, uh, it was completely professional and it was Mm. the top professional audio magazine in the world. Nice. What kinds of things are you uh, interviewing other um, producers or engineers? What, who are you interviewing at the time that's getting you excited? You mean back then? Yeah, yeah. Oh, good question. The uh, interviews were really not so much to do with studio sound, but they were often a lot to do with hi-fi news. Uh, uh, the, uh, I mean, it was... <laughs> When I arrived at Studio Sound, I basically called up all my buddies in the business. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, the, you know, there'd be people like Alan Parsons, yeah. who I knew already. So I just, I called up all my mates and yeah. talked them into doing an interview for it. 
But all, all the time that I was at Studio Sound, I was also interviewing musicians, typically class, classical musicians. Oh, okay. And writing a, a pop music review column. The classical musicians came from all over the place. It could be Pierre Boulez or Charles Rosen. Mm. Um, lots of very agreeable big names. Yeah. I learned a lot from the. I learned a lot from those interviews. Yeah, I bet. So then, how did you then become the A and R man? And my understanding is you had something to do with the signing of the Sex Pistols to EMI, right? Yes, I had decided to quit Studio Sound because of just disagreements with uh, the management. So I decided to quit Studio Sound very quietly, and I looked around for an A&R job in London and Los Angeles. At that point, New York wasn't really featuring too much. And I had offers in both places, and a couple of them in London, and one of them was EMI. Hmm. And I went to EMI because there was a much broader swath of music there. There's yeah. so much music going on at EMI. It was a, a rep, reputed to be a stuffy old place, and it was certainly <laughs> capable of that. But I went there, and I picked up the phone when Malcolm McLaren called, Ooh. the Sex Pistols manager. Uh-huh. And uh, we made sense to each other, so off we went. And I, I saw them at the 100 Club. Nobody else went down. I couldn't talk anybody from the company into going down there. Uh, but I went... And one thing led to another. And so we signed them. Wow. Oh, man. Did you, um, but no one, you could get no one to go to that show with you, but by the time you wanted to sign them, were people more on board? How did you sell it to them? What did you say to them to say, we need to sign this band? Here's why. <clears throat> I really had to sell it to my boss, Nick Mobbs, who was okay. the head of, head of A&R. And so I played them some tracks and we went up to see them in Doncaster together. What an appropriate gig, that little <laughs> club. And uh, Nick liked them. Okay. And you really had to see them because the demos were not very good at all. Mm. They were a shambles, in other words. And so we went up to the Outlook Club and then, and then I went into EMI's um, little studio in Manchester Square. And we did some demos, which I had to do because the originals didn't sound good enough to sell the idea of the band to the rest of the record company, which, of course, you have to do. Yeah. And so off we went, and the record company liked it. And it grew and grew and grew. And at the end of it, the record company, EMI, had never had so much fun in years. (laughs) That's one way to put it. Yeah. No, every, everybody loved it. Uh huh. What a ride! Oh my gosh. Yeah, uh, it was. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, who else did you have a hand in? Now, I, I I know you go on to produce Wire, and that's kind of what cements your the beginning of your career. And I want to ask you about that in a minute. But did you discover Wire, or did you just produce them after the fact? You never know who discovers what and mm-hmm. what that word means, even. But I met Wire. Uh, very early on in the Live at the Roxy album, uh-huh. which uh, was my first album to go top 20, a, a, an old punk record recorded completely live mm. in a grubby basement um, in the West End of London. And that was probably the most surprise hit of the year. <clears throat> and why we're on it, yeah. along with quite a lot of other people, Buzzcocks, Slaughter and the Dogs, 
um, so many people. Yeah. <clears throat> and everybody was so delighted when it went top 20 and nobody saw that coming really. No. But punk had come full circle and it was suddenly of interest to so many record buyers and they bought it. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Do you, um, so who else did you have a hand in finding? Anyone else that we would know? Um, no let, let, me, let me do a vague answer. The one thing that I've always gone for is music which is different uh-huh. and and has something new to say. And in pop music terms, it'll either disappear without a trace, uh, because it's often hard to get the marketing department to pay attention, uh-huh. or it'll go all the way, like Tainted Love or Don't Leave Me This Way. Yeah. And that happened with a lot of people. Wire is an example. They didn't exactly go top five, but um, they made such a mark and continue to. Yeah. And yeah. It, worked, it worked very well for me because I was able to be a kind of record company maverick in a way and yeah. enjoy myself and every so often it would work. So I kept my job. Good. Right on. So, okay, let's talk about Wire. Um, those first three albums, especially Pink Flag, but all of them are so unique and so different. When you're making those albums, okay, when it, like when Wire comes to you and say, we have songs that we want to put on this album, but some of them are just barely over a minute long. And it's so different. It's counterintuitive to what normally consi- you know makes an album or a pop song. Was there, what, was the, what were the challenges behind that? I mean, did you realize as you're doing it, we're making something so different? Like you were just saying, it's either so different that people don't get it at all and it's gone without a trace or it really hits big were you in that same frame of mind as you're making especially pink flag i didn't think it was different at all ah. again as i said earlier i like making music i like with people i like and i like this music yeah and i've always liked music which is left of center bear in mind that when i was working classical music um, I reviewed all the contemporary classical or con- contemporary art for Hi-Fi News because that was the only part that was interesting to me. I didn't yeah. want to review Beethoven symphonies. Everybody <laughs> else does. Everybody else does that. True. I wanted to dig into all the new stuff, and that's what I did. And I, I took over the Hi- Hi-Fi News contemporary music review section. Well, not t- took it over, but I did it. Yeah. And that's so in parallel 
with later on just seeking out unusual music by often unusual people. So in both cases between, um, well, in, in all the three bands or artists that we've talked about, there's been a progression from kind of going from nowhere to to becoming more successful. And as I mentioned with the other two, what was it like with Wire? Are they, as you're seeing them, you know, become even more creative on subsequent albums, um, especially on the like 154 and everything. Are they changing as individuals or do their de- is their dedication to being weird, uh, for lack of a better word, just as strong as it always has been? Well, I think weirdness is something that comes with us uh, uh, when you want to do something different. And why I certainly wanted to do something different, there would be outrage in the control room if uh, somebody had said, let's record this song with a kind of Motown feel. Uh, that's, that's completely inconceivable. And that same attitude just carried on during the three albums that we did together. And it was just simply looking for something new and fresh. And that translated into those three albums, which I still love listening to. Absolutely, me too. Were there were other people influencing the sound or the direction? Because that's one of the things that I feel is so unique about those albums is that they you don't really I can't listen to that and think oh that I see where they're going with this. It's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's almost it's so specific and um, and unique to itself. When they come in, are they are you guys having conversations about you know there's other post punk? It wasn't called that then, but there's other post punk bands that are doing this really interesting thing. We want to try that too, or is it you just whole, coming out fully formed from their own minds? It certainly didn't come out fully formed. It was uh, it went round the houses so many times, but uh-huh. there was certainly no intent at all to copy anything anybody else was doing. Mm-hmm. In fact, as I mentioned earlier about a Motown feel, mm-hmm. if there was something already there, then it would be avoided rather than copied. Yeah. So when a song is a minute and a half long, do you guys say to yourselves, you know what, don't touch it. It's great. It's great just the way it is. Or is there some kind of like a self-imposed pressure to like, you can't put a minute along, a bunch of minute along and a half long songs on a record. That's not how it's done. If it's not how it's done, then that's something which would attract wire. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. It's almost like a, go ahead. We would, we would never copy anything, but 
conversely, we would never be deliberately different. Yeah. We just we just followed the music and what it implied, and that went in all sorts of funny directions. And <laughs> the mm-hmm. outtakes are probably entertaining, although <laughs> I, prob- I probably couldn't bear to listen to them right now. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I mean, they were sort of an, a precursor almost for Guided by Voices, another you know American band. You probably know them. They do something similar. Just uh, if a song doesn't need to be longer than a minute, then leave it the way it is. It's perfect. Just like that, you know? Oh, yes. That, they, they have a very good attitude that way. And it's the, the point is, if you've told the story, that's it. Yeah, that's it. That's the end of the story. Um, okay. I want to ask you about a... Well... They're fairly obscure, but they're a band. I don't know a ton about them, but I have one album by The Shirts. Streetlights Fade. Is that what it's called? Streetlight Shine. Streetlight Shine. I'm sorry. Yeah, Streetlight Shine. like those guys it's different it's it's there's a there's almost a dramatic or um a uh, theatrical sense to the music a little bit and i wonder and i don't have all their stuff i know you did both albums but annie golden the lead singer goes on to be an actress she was in the first she was in uh orange is the new black if anyone watches that show and um but how did you get involved with the shirts and what was the direction for them uh, my boss, Nick Mobbs, went over to L.A. at one point, or, no, it was New York. My boss, Nick Mobbs, went over to New York at one point, and he was just dragged in to, uh, to see something at CBGB's. And the shirts were playing also, and he saw the shirts, and he said to himself, these are rather good. So he talked to Capitol Records. Capitol Records weren't interested. Mm. And so Nick told them, if you don't sign them, I'm going to sign them direct to London. And so a hybrid deal was put together, which involved a joint signing to New York and to London, which proved disastrous politically. But uh, that's how it was. And Nick played me the tracks one day and said, what do you think? I said, well, not very much, Mm. but uh, there's some good songs in there. So I met the band, and uh, we talked, and they were so wide open without, without rolling over and dying. Mm-hmm. And so off we went, and they had they thought very progressively. 
yeah. and very creatively. And there were six of them. So that was a tremendous resource. And all of them sang, including the drummer. Mm-hmm. So uh, we booked, we did the, I, I, I rehearsed in New York with them. And then we booked a studio in London and they came over, had a terrific time. We did the second album in New York. Okay. And they turned out pretty well. Yeah. But, yeah. Oh, go ahead. But unfortunately, the record company, the split loyalty, meant that uh, there wasn't really a concerted effort to push them mm-hmm. because there was a rivalry between the two companies. So uh, they didn't get very far. Yeah. Yeah, I um, I discovered them in a very specific way. Um, I think it was on a blog or something like that. And But I've never heard them on the radio, you know, they, I've never heard their name really come up in a rock doc of any kind. They're sort of lost to history, which is too bad because there's some really interesting stuff going on there, you know? Yeah. I think the shirts were very adventurous. Yeah, I agree. But, uh, I, I can't go beyond that. It's just the, and it, you know, it wasn't me. It was, yeah. it was them. They were right. open and they would come in with some, sometimes a half baked idea and as was my job, I would help them realize it. Yeah. You, um, when you moved to, from London to New York in, the, in 1981, what was the motivation for that? Because you were really kind of finally finding your footing over there, you know, with Wire and then and the other projects that are going on at the time. Why move? Well, I was in very good shape in London. Um, the phone was ringing very nicely. Yeah. But I just gravitated towards New York. And don't forget, New York was really coming into its own yeah. at that time. It was wide open and it was dangerous and it was this and it was that. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, I fell in love with that city. And the city now isn't the city that I fell in love with. Mm-hmm. But it was, uh, it was exceptional. And everybody was attracted to it. Everybody went there. And it was cheap which mm-hmm. meant that uh, pop musicians could arrive there and carve out a little niche, which is what it what it did. And CBGB's was blossoming. Yeah. Yeah. You're still there. Where? What part of New York City do you live in? In Chelsea, which is just above the village. Okay. Yep. Great. Um, when you're working then with, you know, uh, when you're doing Tainted Love or you're doing the Communards or whatever, and... Um, are you going back to London to record with them? Or are they coming to you? Um, how does that work? I would I would work in either city, and I was okay. practically commuting between London and New York for a lot of the time, and it was it was very stimulating, albeit yeah. not very good for the jet lag. Right, <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. Okay, um, all right. I want to ask you talking about CBGBs. From what I can tell, it's not, I don't think it's on your website, but I was uh, looking at it in other places. Did you work with Johnny Thunders on the LAMF album? Uh, no. What I did was I, I wanted to sign them to EMI in London because they'd come over there. But uh, they were wild boys by EMI standards. Yeah, they sure were. And so um, I, I did some demos with them in London which turned out pretty well. I don't know where they are now. I, mm. I think they might have been released on uh, some sort of record. Probably. Um, but um, my boss, Nick, was a bit put off by their, by, by their style. Mm. So it didn't get any further. Okay. All right. right. Let's. I want to ask you about the, the, 
because you worked on Uncertain Smile, which is, um, that's talking all these legendary songs, just one right after another, Mike. So this one, again, I, I forgive me if these are just dumb questions that you get asked all the time, but <laughs> Matt, <clears throat> Matt Johnson comes in with Uncertain Smile, and who decides that Jules Holland needs to come in and do like a giant piano solo that's one of the greatest things anyone's ever heard? Well, it wasn't me because he, didn't, he wasn't on the record that I made. Ah. It, it was redone later with all that other stuff, and... Personally, I prefer the rather lean version that mm. Matt and I did together. Okay. Okay. Did you work on that whole album, Soul Mining, or just that one song? Just Uncertain Smile okay. and a couple of other tracks, but that was basically it. Okay. Uh, Matt has sort of like, uh, you know, slunked away. He, he just sort of, um, he's kind of an enigma. I guess just decided he didn't want anything more to do with music or something. Was he... Um, uh, I keep asking these questions about these hyper creative people that you've worked with. What was, was he one of them as well? I never think at the time whether ah. people are creative or hyper creative or dumb or whatever. Um, <laughs> there's, there's music to be done and uh-huh. an interesting person to do it with. So off we go. It's only when the record comes out and if it stands apart, then people start saying, Oh, this is a, hyper-creative kind of character. At the time, it's just music I like with people I like. And I was attracted, as I've said, to things which are a little left of center. Unfortunately, I got away with it. Yeah. Yeah, you did. I mean, you're behind... Oh, man. I mean, just from this list, and I still have more to go. So much music that matters to me, especially. Okay, going back to one of my Patreon supporters, Michael Bagford, asked... He's a huge Roger Daltrey fan, and he wanted to know about the making of Parting Should Be Painless album. Um, That was, you know... For anyone who doesn't know, Daltrey is sort of starting to kick off a solo career. Hopefully, this is one of the first forays into that. Um, it never quite takes off like it should. I don't think I really like the work he put out in the eighties. Um, but where are, what is, where's his headspace when you're working with him on that album?
we got along very well and we saw eye to eye musically. And he wanted to move to a more lyrical space rather than uh, a loud rock and roll space. Yeah. And uh, so he picked out quite a few easygoing songs, let's say, because he wanted, he wanted to open up vocally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so that's what he did. And at the end of it, he said, well, I've got that out of my system. <laughs> and <laughs> so he was, he was happy at the end. But unfortunately, a lot of people just wanted him to be uh, the front man of The Who. Yeah. And for me, the later albums, um, he just went back to um, to loud rock and roll. But he really wanted to be broader than that at the time. Yeah, you can totally tell, especially on that album. It's so different, you know. And I know everyone, even the rockers, are being influenced by the new wave movement of that time. They're starting to incorporate synthesizers too. They're getting turned on by Ultravox and those guys, Duran Duran or whatever as well. And we don't we don't always think that they make sense, but to the artist who wants to try something a little different, it makes sense. But you're right. Throughout the course of the '80s, when he puts out subsequent solo albums, they become more like mini Who albums than the one you worked on. Yours was so different. Uh, yes, that's its strength and its failure in a way. Yeah. But um, it's it sounds nice, and I still listen to it for pleasure. Yeah, it's great. Um, okay, so let's then let's talk about the first Blur album. You produce Leisure or Leisure, I guess, as you'd probably say, right? No, I produced a few tracks for it. I can't Ooh, which remember. ones? Oh God, there's no other way. Uh, I don't know. It's 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 all credited on the album. Those guys are great, and you know they go on to be one of the biggest bands ever in Britain. Anyway, never quite landing in the states as big as you would think they would. But um, you know, this is their real, really their debut album. Are they? Are they a bunch of like scrappy kids? Do you foresee the sort of creativity that Damon Almarn would bring to his career? Do you? What are your impressions of Blur early on? Well, they certainly weren't scrappy kids. They were uh, very, um, <laughs> well, they were scrappy. Uh-huh. Um, there was, uh, the studio was quite lively. Okay. And uh, after the studio was uh, sometimes carnage. <laughs> they knew how to party very well. <laughs> but uh, there was a sense of where they should go. And they didn't always know to go that way, but they knew when they'd got there. Uh-huh. 
Yeah. Okay. When you see a band like Blur go on after this to be them and Oasis neck and neck, biggest bands in the country, what are your thoughts and feelings? When you see them in the news and all that, do you think, boy, I knew those guys when they were just kids, partying kids in my stereo, in my studio? Or uh, are you like, yes, this is where this band belongs, you know? I don't think that any band belongs anywhere, really. Uh, I think you have to carve out your own space. Okay. Um, Till Tuesday, Voices Carry. I, I keep going in thinking you've produced the whole thing, but did you work on the whole album or just parts of that one? I delivered the whole album. I thought so. Okay, Voices Carry still gets played all the time. Um, <laughs> here we are again with Mike Thorne making one of the biggest songs of a given year or whatever. And Amy Mann goes on to be you know, one of this, this fantastic songwriter uh, in her own right. Um, what are you? What are the conversations like to form or create the band that would become Till Tuesday? What Are you having meetings with a record executive saying, we want them to look this way, we want them to sound this way? The record company always wants something commercial, quote-unquote. With Till Tuesday, I thought the songs were really good, and uh, though they had their musical sensibility, and Amy's extremely smart, mm-hmm. And we just went on to do it, you know, and it it became a hit. Yeah. Uh, Let me me think if I can say anything more interesting about that. Well, like, uh, is is she the driving force when you're all making that album? Is she calling all the shots? Is she in charge? Or is it more of a group effort? Um, She definitely took the initiative. But it was very much a group effort, okay. as you can hear. If you li- if you listen to the arrangements, you can sure. you can hear that. It all interlocks. Yeah, yeah. It seems like almost the albums they made after this were gearing more toward a little bit of an Amy solo project, maybe just a little. But um, this album is, so, I mean, it's classic, you know. And the video yeah. is on TV all the time, you know. It oh, still gets yeah. played all the time. <laughs> and yeah, it's a good one. And it, it's, uh, it was the video was made in Boston when a blizzard had just hit, and there was a large audience ready to come in to uh, be there with Amy. Unfortunately, the blizzard kept most people at home, um, so that's the reason that the camera doesn't pull back so far at oh. the very end because <laughs> there wasn't there, there weren't too many people there. 
<laughs> That's funny. I never thought about that. That's classic. Okay. We try to sensitively cover the business side of some things on here. And we've just established all these, you know, evergreen songs and hits that you've worked on. Uh, you allude to on your website, the pension of a particular hit was nice. When you get, I mean, are you able to live off the royalties from these gigantic hits that you've created? Um, yes. N- not some wild lifestyle. Right. But uh, no, I, I, it's, as I say, it's a nice pension. Yeah. Yeah. What about you personally? Are you married? Do you have kids? Do you, what's the story? I'm married, no kids. Okay. Uh, I'm married to somebody who, when I first knew her, she was basically on Wall Street. Oh. It's, it was a cliche at some points that rock and roll and Wall Street went together. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I, 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 I was a little bit queasy when she went there. She was an accountant when I first knew her, which my rock and roll friends, that was a test of that for them whether they could handle it or not. And then she went to Wall Street, and I was a bit queasy about that because I didn't like the ethos too much. Sure. But but she said, "Look, it's just it's just legal gambling." <laughs> That's it. Yep. That's it. You're right. Well, good for you. Okay. And you created a life for yourself there in New York. Still there. Yeah, by accident. Yeah. What do you do now? I mean, what's your what? Do you are you retired? Do you? Uh, somewhere along the way, you became the director of new music media development at Warner Brothers, I believe. I don't even know what that means. Oh, that was um, after I left Studio Sound, and then I quit record production because I'd had I'd had enough of going around the same houses. Yeah. And Warner Music offered me this job, and the idea was to go find the new bits of music and. Uh, produce them if necessary but then it became much broader it became uh, well the, the new media kicked in mm. so it, it became my my mission my assignment to go and find out wherever the new technologies and music overlapped go find go fetch okay, okay. so what do you do now are you retired do you still produce things well, I'm sitting in my control room, looking around, <laughs> picking my nose occasionally, uh-huh. and yeah. uh, I just do stuff that occurs to me. There are there are a couple of records, you know, thinking of, and a few things, a few projects. There's a potential movie score. Okay. Um, it's you know, <laughs> whenever the phone goes, which, which um, you know, I don't run around trying to do anything these days, but. Every so often, somebody calls up and says, do you fancy this? Mm. And if I do, then off we go. Okay. Okay, one last one. Information Society. I believe you worked on the Peace and Love Incorporated album, right? Yes.
They are on sort of the downward, you know, downward side of their career by that point. But what was it like working with them? They were very technically oriented. Yeah, you can that, tell. I was interested. I mean, they they were more technical than, than me, and I'm coming out of a physics degree here. Right. <laughs> but they, uh, you know, they, they took it a long way, and good luck to them. Yeah. Yeah. What were the expectations? Were they coming in sort of like, Mike, we need you to help us recapture the, you know, pure energy feeling that we had a while back, or they, they are, that album is a little more kind of urban. I wanted to ask you about your solo material because I didn't know that you had anything until I got ready to talk to you and I found Sprawl. so much fun and I'm wondering when you now I know that's a few years old now but was the intention like you know I've been a producer for so long I've got some ideas I got to get out are you going to tour that album what was the plan when you made Sprawl because it's great the plan was just to make it really I didn't think how far it would go if anywhere Uh huh. and it's uh, it's difficult I just called lots of my old mates or Maytats, because it's uh-huh. an all-female all vocal. Yeah. The idea behind that was that I wanted to get something which sounded like, I don't know, old soul records, where mm. you don't hear a, a soloist in the middle mm. in your face. You just hear a mass of voices, and you listen to the song rather than the singer. Mm. And so that's what I was looking for with those big female vocal arrangements. And it. In practice, one person sings all of the main vocals, but you know other people would come in. Um, you know, it's, do, you, do you fancy singing this bit on here? Oh, sure. <laughs> and that's how it went. Okay. Um, all right. Before I let you go, tell me your favorite story. I, I'm guessing you've done so many different things, seen so many different things, worked with so many interesting characters. I've tried to pull some stories out of you on this, but when you sit back and you look back over your career... What's one of those stories where you just think, you guys, you would not believe what happened to me? The time I talked to so-and-so or the time I hung out with this person or I did drugs with that person or whatever. What's one of those stories? Oh, God, I, I can't, I can't <laughs> even be- begin to think because it was, it was always fun and games. Yeah. It's a, it's a bit like somebody's asked you, what's your favorite record? Or, oh. You know, it's, it's the same question. There's, there's so much stuff going on, and I've enjoyed so many scenes yeah. that uh, I can't answer it. And the whole point was always for me to find a new scene yeah. or find a new sound. And that was the attraction. It wasn't 
settling in somewhere and then milking it for the next 10 years. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I thought of one more I wanted to ask you about real quick. Uh, walk on Gilded Splinters with uh, the Flower Pot Men. I had Ben Watkins on here a few years ago, too. And um, I know them primarily for Beat City, which is a song that was on the Ferris Bueller's Day Off soundtrack. And then he went on to be Juno Reactor, really excellent kind of trance techno music. But you put this, you remixed that song for them, I believe, right? What was that like? Uh, which song? Walk on Gilded Splinters, no? It's on no, your we, website. We, we, we did it all together. We, oh, we did okay. it from scratch. Yep. And Dr. John came in and with that was a good record that was a good record yes yeah so how did who gets john dr john to come in and sing on this obscure band's record they did really found out yeah i uh put out the word and i found out where he was which was living on i think on 13th street or 16th street just in the village or just above the village and uh they got in touch with him and he said yes. He's a very amiable character. Mm. And uh, off we went. He came in, and we were recording out in Bed Stuy, Bedford Stuy, mm. mm-hmm. and he did it. And we all had a lot of fun. That's great. Such a good song. Yes. Well, thank you, Mike, for talking with me. You're a legend. You've done so much music that matters to me. I thought it would be so interesting to pick your brain and hear some of your stories. Thank you for doing this. Uh, you're welcome. All right, there you have it, Mike Thorne. It was okay, right? It's a little bit of a challenge, kind of like talking to Robert De Niro. But anyway, so much good music in there. I wanted to close it out with another song from The Shirts because I really like that album, and it's totally obscure. This is Laugh and Walk Away. It's the first track on that album I mentioned, Streetlights Shine. Uh, Anyway, Mike's done a lot too. Now, next up, we have a really special episode next week that I'm pretty excited about. It's... um, it's, an, it's somebody that I have gotten a ton of requests for over the years. The Patreon people know who this is and submitted questions to this interview. Thank you, folks. But uh, it's somebody I think everybody likes and never hears from. So I'm kind of a jazzed about what's coming up next week. Huge thanks, as always, to Jan the Man Makiewicz, my right-hand man. Thank you, buddy, for everything. This episode, two was not easy to put together, and I appreciate it. You guys know what to do. You can find us on Facebook. You can like our page. 
You can send us a message on there, or you can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. And I think we have a the recap coming out this weekend. It's Again, it's all up to schedules and stuff like that, but it's in the can, and I think it might be coming out this weekend, all right? So look for that, too. Thanks, folks. We love you.